You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome to the Drive Time Show on Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to myself, Salman, and I'm joined by Brother Fahim. And we shall be with you, God willing, for the next roughly two hours and as always discussing some very very interesting topics so please do stay tuned and do get in touch with us if you would like to share your opinion on the topics that we are discussing today um, the first topic for the first hour we've got today is happiness and the question that we are asking in this regard is does religion make us more satisfied with life or not we are also asking you a similar question um, on our socials, religion makes me, and your options are happy, less happy, or no impact on happiness. So do let us know what you think about this. Brother Fahim, does religion make you more happy and satisfied? Um, I genuinely believe that it makes me content, and it is the biggest factor to make me content. Um, I've found that religion is the source of a lot of the happiness. Um, well, actually, I want to say all the all the happiness. Um, it's something that really, truly makes me feel fulfilled. It enables me to understand my purpose. It enables me to do good in the world. There's so many different things that it enables me to do. So, mm. yes, simply put, yes. But, um, yeah, I think that religion, specifically Islam, um, is what makes me happy. How about you? Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. Simple answer would be yes. Yeah. But if you were to go into the details, is just everyone has sort of their own story with religion. And that's another beauty about religion that it guides everyone in its own way and it helps you in its own way but really if i put religion first before making any decision in life it is complete happiness and contentment mm. and obviously we will uh, delve into this more um over the next hour or so we also will be speaking to uh, wonderful uh, expert guest callers that we have coming for our listeners so as I said earlier please do stay tuned and give us a call on 0208-687-7878 that is 0208-687-7878 you can also find us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK um, so happiness and, and life satisfaction they, they, they seem like related concepts right hmm. um, but they capture different aspects of an individual's well-being so happiness is a more sort of subjective and emotional experience uh, characterized by feelings of joy, contentment and satisfaction. It is often associated with positive emotions such as love, gratitude and pleasure, whereas life satisfaction is a more broader or more stable concept. Referring to an individual's overall assessment of their life, it uh, encompasses a cognitive evaluation of one's life as a whole, taking into account various domains such as work, relationships, health and personal achievements. 
Yeah, and happiness and life satisfaction are interconnected, right, in a d- dynamic way. And while happiness contributes to moment-to-moment well-being, life satisfaction reflects a more stable and long-term assessment. Um, we found that uh, numerous studies suggest a positive correlation between religious engagement and life satisfaction. Is actually theorized that the sense of purpose, community support, and the moral framework provided by religious beliefs contribute significantly to an individual's overall satisfaction with life. Um, I'm sure you've experienced it as well. Um, but religious communities often offer strong social support networks, fostering a sense of belonging and purpose. That communal aspect can enhance life satisfaction for many individuals. I I genuinely believe that um, it, it, there's such a wisdom in Islam uh, and, and religion of, of bringing people together that tackles this, this pandemic of loneliness that we have. Um, it's something that we've, like, you know, a lot of people are suffering from. And I genuinely think that this, this community that religion provides and um, the, the fact that less and less people are, you know, fight of, like part of uh, religious communities or, or communities, the, the, and, you know, the, with the increase of social media and uh, not so just social media, but technology where you can practically sit by yourself alone in a house, you know, and be able to do everything. Yep. Um, that loneliness is kicking in. And I think that that's why I genuinely think that having a community and a group of people that you regularly meet, like, for example, <laughs> when you when you meet a friend at work or, or at school, they, they, they're usually temporary, like in, in like 80 to 90 percent of those people are temporary friends while you're in the same institution. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, a friend that you meet at, like, let's say, mosque, church, or, or any religious uh, community, is for life. Yeah. Right? Um, and that that's the big distinction that I see is that, like, you know, or you'll have, a, like, this co-workers I've had that, you know, you just spend so much time with, right, because we work together. And mm-hmm. then, like, mm-hmm. you know, years later, like, don't even, like, hear from them or anything. Yeah. So, but the, the consistency that I've had in my life is there's, there's people in the community that I've known since I was like five, six years old <laughs> and, and I still know them and I still keep in touch with them and there's so many, like, you know, we have um, our gathering once a year as well, the the, the Jalasa Salana, mm. um, where I see people who I've, I've known for so long. So I, I really think that that community aspect is a massive, massive thing uh, in uh, providing happiness and mm. um, life, life satisfaction. And that's exactly what um, Islam right, teaches us mm. in, in general. Uh, Islam very strongly believes in, in community work, community service, staying together, staying united. And this is why we as the Ahmadiyya community claim today that we are the most united group within Islam because we are led by the Khilafah, the Caliph, right? The only community worldwide that can claim that we are guided by one Khalifa, by one Caliph, and we do as he says, and he guides us on a weekly basis and leads us towards betterment, uh, whether it be in our personal, individual lives or on a more 
um, societal level. But there is always this positive guidance that keeps us going. And that's where um, sort of this, this whole satisfaction and contentment and happiness in life, that all this, all this comes together in a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, a a uh, study that was produced by the Institute of the Impact of Life, uh, it reveals that people of faith in Britain are significantly happier than atheists and non-religious people. The study titled Keep the Faith, Mental Health in the UK, authored by Dr. Rakib Ehsan for the Institute of the Impact of Faith in Life, the IIFL, shows that on average, people uh, for whom religion is an important part of their identity are happier, more optimistic and more resilient than atheists and non-religious people. So on, on key metrics, Brits who identify as more religious report a higher level of mental well-being than those who are less devout. Um, on that note, let's speak with um, Dr. Jake Scott, who is the secretary for the Institute of uh, the Impact of uh, Faith in Life, supporting the work of the Senior Research, uh, research Associate, Dr. Rakib Hassan, and responsible for engaging faith communities across the country. Dr. Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. So let's kick things off with how would you define happiness and life satisfaction in the research? So it's, it's a very good question. We asked a number of different questions when preparing the survey that was conducted at the beginning of October. And the first question was quite straightforward in that we asked respondents to simply reply how happy they had felt or how happy they considered themselves to be leading up to the, um, up to the survey, hmm. and leaving it up to themselves to decide what happiness meant at a basic level. But we also asked a number of questions relating to key indicators of happiness, such as self-control, optimism, and resilience. And what was interesting was that on these key indicators, we found a high level of correlation between uh, religiosity and, uh, and self-reported self-control. So, for instance, 74% of people who considered religion important for identity said they had high self-control compared to 51% of atheists. Uh, 64% consider themselves to be optimistic compared to 42% of atheists and 76% consider themselves to be resilient in facing the challenges that life presented to them compared to 56% of atheists. So while we left it up to the individual respondents to define the concept of happiness on key indicators of strong mental health, there is a, there's a clear correlation between really, really, uh, with religiosity. Right. In- So did your research identify specific religious practices or beliefs that seem to contribute more significantly to happiness? So were there Mm. things that that, that indicated that? Absolutely. And I think it's very important that that that's been asked. So we found that attendance of religious ceremonies correlated highly with uh, life satisfaction. And what's important is when we asked questions regarding religious ceremonies, we excluded significant occasions such as funerals and weddings. So rather than just you know, going to a friend's wedding, going to a family member's funeral, uh, we, we asked how often people attended ceremonies and whether they took part in weekly uh, worship or key religious ceremonies. Uh, and, and this is a statistically significant relationship amongst people who attend weekly services. So we found that the more regular people attend simple weekly or regular religious ceremonies, the higher their life satisfaction. Hmm. So that, that is quite interesting. Um, 
when it comes to um happiness and and um the, the your your research that you've done um have you identified any common misconceptions among the people i think commonly people presume that happiness comes from uh, some things that you would find in this world so whether that's material acquisition or or short term satisfaction um but but of course when it comes to people of faith uh, and faith in general we tend to look for satisfaction from things from beyond the world and we identified a significant correlation between people of faith and and possessed spiritual belief uh, and life satisfaction to such an extent that we can say it's a contributing factor in positive mental health so um which this 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 challenges some of the uh, the key uh, con- presumptions of a society that's that's quite obsessed with say material wealth uh, and short term satisfactions mm. to look um to, to to suggest that faith plays a major role in looking beyond these these immediate source of satisfaction uh, and to a deeper uh, source of satisfaction in in life so i wanted to ask like what are some potential explanations for this observed difference that you've had between people uh, who follow a faith and, and people who don't so this is something that we explored at our launch event on the 28th of november uh, we we had a fantastic event discussing the, the two reports obviously the one we're talking about now uh, keep the faith on mental health hmm. uh, but also on making faith work which is on the relationship between faith and work uh, we had a fantastic panel of course we had dr rakib hasan who you've mentioned uh, a sunni muslim uh, we were joined by angus taylor a modern progressive jew hmm. uh, sorry a modern orthodox jew uh, kuzma kambai a shia muslim from the dawi dibora community and Dr. Solomon Osagi from the Elam Pentecostal Church in Christianity. Um, what was interesting across all faiths and across all members of the panel was this discussion that, that faith is a consistent source of support. Mm. So insofar as we have sources of support in life, such as our family, our friends, our work, our communities, um, they are consistent to a degree, but they do come and go. Mm. But the one thing that is, that is always consistent is God. And uh, whether that's God in the monotheistic sense or the, the polytheistic sense or just a sense of, of a divine spiritual power, um, there is that consistent level of support and the belief that no matter how difficult life gets, you do have this consistency. Mm. So uh, across all major faiths in the UK, this um, I, I would say one of the most obvious differences is this genuine belief in a consistent level of support regardless of the challenges of life. Right, so in this research, it's it's great, you know, we've learned something from it, we understand something, but what what are the implications? Like, what what what's actually going to change? Is there some sort of change in societal attitudes or policies? Um, like, what what we've learned something, but what's the application of these learnings? So, I think it's very important that we have this conversation, largely because of the historical circumstance we find ourselves in now. Um, Britain has been a religious country for as long as as Britain has existed uh, and for much much longer before the union of the, of the kingdoms um before sorry um now we're at a point where relig- Britain is becoming both uh, religiously diverse but also more secular at the same time so we're in a quite unique place where um the majority of people still remain religious but we might see very soon more than 50% of people in the UK becoming religious so, uh, sorry, becoming atheist. Mm. So um, what we have to try and do now is understand the positive impacts that faith plays in life, if, of course, there are positive impacts, and our research would suggest that there are quite significant positive impacts. 
Um, but also, as we become more religiously diverse, try and address the the underlying presumptions and, and educate people that we share more between faiths than we think, uh, both in terms of daily practices and, as I say, the source of resilience and positivity in life. Um, so hopefully what we're trying to achieve through this is uh, increasing dialogue between communities, but also educating people on the shared qualities between communities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um Dr. Scott, thank you very much for for being with us. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. And I wish you a lovely day ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And God bless. So um, we were just speaking with uh, Dr. Jake Scott. And I think one key message that I have taken away from, from this short conversation that we had with Dr. Scott is that God is the one constant. Yeah. Right. And uh, as long as that belief in the existence of a god um whether uh it's one god god or multiple and that's a conversation for another day but the belief in a higher being is something that really keeps us going yeah and you know it's it's that consistency like you hear it everywhere these days you know consistency is key consistency is key yeah but islam has been you know, suggesting consistency for <laughs> since the beginning of time. Exactly. Really. exactly. Yeah. Um, and what I find really interesting here is that um, when you think about it, right? Like we're talking about happiness here, but when sadness strikes of any sort, or when you know you find yourself in a situation where you're like, I don't know what to do, or there's no perceivable positive outcome, who do you turn to? Mm-hmm. Right, like every and and you see it like whether it's in in documentaries, movies, or or, or TV shows or whatever. There's always or, or you know just m- m- um, social media videos. You're seeing people at the end of their lives or in or in very distressing situations. They'll always turn to God. Yeah, and it's like okay, so don't wait for that moment. Don't wait for that moment where that's gonna happen. Like because ultimately, like like, and I think that. Uh, one of the key things that I took away from it was that, um, yeah, God is consistent, but the thing is, is that God will always be there, no matter what, right? Mm. Like, it doesn't matter if the whole world leaves you. Yeah. And I think that there's the the revelation um, to the the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, where uh, the the revelation says, uh, "Is uh, God not sufficient for his servant yes and I think that that always comes to mind where it's like okay look it doesn't matter what happens yeah. you you will like the, you know you could lose everybody God forbid um, in your life but God will always be there and I think that that's what gives people resilience yeah. that's what gives people contentment and f- make them feel safe and therefore leads to um, you know happiness and long term uh, satisfaction Absolutely. You see, for a believing Muslim or Christian or, or Jew or uh, in, 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 in what uh, whatever God they one, one believes in, right? We always have that hope. Mm-hmm. So that hope is the one constant that always remains with us, right? In the Holy Quran, Allah Almighty states that yusra, So there is hardship with ease. Mm. And there is ease with hardship. So whenever we get into a difficult situation, 
we as believing Muslims, we always know that, look, there will come ease after this. Yeah. Right? And this is not something you are telling me or I'm telling you. This is yeah. the Almighty telling me. So yeah. that level of hope and belief is just very, very strong. Yeah. It's something that you just can't take away from me. So for a believing person, life becomes much easier because even in a in, in a time of hardship, mm-hmm. we always turn to the to our Lord again, right? Yeah. If you as a person disappoint me, mm. I can't do anything about it. Right? You've disappointed me. Yeah. I can cut you off my life and that is it. Mm. But with God, if something difficult is happening to me, I will always turn back to him and mm. I'll I'll ask him. And I will repent for uh, potential sins that I, that I may have committed, and I'll ask for His mercy, mm. and that really um, sort of uh, is 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 coincidence as well that we will be talking about God's mercy in the in, in the second hour as well. Mm. So please do stay tuned and uh, listen what we have to tell you about that. But um, st- staying with this topic right now, so this uh, hope and this belief is something that really keeps us going, and this is why. Um, the, the, the study that we were mentioning earlier also states um, that 73% say they have good psychological well-being compared to 49% for atheists. Yeah. Similarly, 76% of the believing uh, describe themselves as happy compared to the 52% for atheists. And 76% are satisfied with life compared to 53% mm. for atheists. So, I mean, these numbers are really staggering and they have a There's very big clear percentages message. as well. Big percentages, right? yeah. big percentages. And we'll speak more about this um, with our next guest caller, which is uh, Evelyn Lee, um, is a poet and former CBS News producer who has produced television segments for 60 Minutes in New York and the BBC in London. She's also a warden at St. Mary's Battersea. Um, Evelyn, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Yes, I, can you hear me? I can hear you. Um, thank you very much um, for, for being with us and taking out your time to share some of your expertise with us. Um, to, 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 to get started, what role do personal relationships play in contributing to your sort of overall happiness? Oh, so uh, one of the things I'm, one of the things I get to do uh, through uh, St. Mary's Battersea is uh, be a lay minister at the care home mm-hmm. in Battersea, yeah. uh, which is an end-of-life care home. And I think that's when I really have learned and gotten to see how important relationships are to people and happiness. And so how do you define happiness? Because you, that's the question of the hour, really, isn't it? And do you, do you believe it's like subjective or objective? What's your thought? So I think happiness is a flower, and I think it doesn't bloom ever, ever, all the time. But I think you need roots, and you need a bulb, and I think you need seasons. Um, but I think you have to have faith that the flower will bloom when you're in the dark season. I like that analogy. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. isn't that's, it? That's really, that's really nice. Um, and so what, what do you think about material possessions, like... Um, Especially in 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 where you're working, do, do, what 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 have you what's your experience been with people at the end of their lives? They what what have they thought about and have material possessions been top of the list? No, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think hand, so. <laughs> hand, hand, yeah. hand holding, yeah, hand yeah. holding, yeah. Um, you know, love stories, um, people sharing, you know, tears actually mm. at the end of life, um, and and just being kind. I think that there's there's a letting go of the possessions. I think there's letting go of the anxiety of 
things you wanted to do or didn't do, or there's just a huge amount of letting go and facing death and facing, you know, the journey towards God. So, in do you, do you find that um, happiness is is more rooted in experiences? Could could you tell us some uh, examples or, or some things that have, uh, you've experienced? Uh, yeah, I I would say that I would say happiness is rooted in your faith in your relationship to happiness. So I don't think you can make yourself happy. Uh, I don't I don't think that that's up to you. Yeah. I think you can walk towards it or beside it. And sometimes it joins you and sometimes it doesn't. But I think it's not a goal. I think it's a reward. And so I think you have to sort of really plan on how you want to live your life in relationship to other people. And then slowly, suddenly these moments of just pure joy happen. Right. And what does pursuing a passion like what, what have you seen that uh, pursuing a passion has that contributed significantly to a fulfilling life? I I have found in my career um, as a journalist and also as um, you know working with the church that absolutely following passions are helpful, um, especially in poetry. I, I find that musicians, artists, I think if you can find your voice. So the passion to find your voice or the action that's going to make you happy. A young a young person who plays football, uh, and and it, it fully expresses who they are, and they you know they pursue that. It's just as wonderful as a painter painting or a musician making music. But I think focus helps. Right. Yeah, and so with with that in mind, um, do you think that practicing gratitude for all these things you mentioned or just in general um, can enhance one sense? I don't think you can be happy without gratitude. (laughs) (laughs) I think it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) No, I I agree. So, like, do you practice gratitude? Like, what's been your experience of it? So I have have a fantastic friend. She's 91, um, and I've gone for walks with her over the years. Um, She became a widow, I guess, in her early 80s, and the first year of widowhood was very hard, and I watched her choose to be happy. Mm. It was a choice she made to let the world back into her grief. Uh, And then now I would say she's the most joyous person I've ever been around. She does lots of work. There's a program called Gentle Touch, and she goes into hospitals, cancer hospitals, and she massages uh, people. And it's sort of a form of kindness that she gives to people at the end of their life. And I I promise you, walking with Angie, it's like being with Stardust. (laughs) She's fantastic. And she is the most grateful. She just takes joy in God and prayer and life and the sun. And you just begin to learn that it's an attitude and, and it's a gift. And it's you do, not all of us are good at that. I mean, if you live around a lot of people who complain, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. not fantastic at that. Absolutely. Um, Evelyn, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for, for being with us. And so, um, it was lovely speaking And I wish you. you happiness. <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> you. And we wish you and pray for your happiness too. Thank you for being with us. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Um, so, speaking with uh, Evelyn Lee and uh, really positive vibes that yes. she left with us. And we hope that that really reached our listeners as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, you 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 can find happiness in in the 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 smallest of things, isn't it? Yeah, 
Mm. I think gratitude, you know, it it is so key. I mm. think that, uh, as Evelyn mentioned, you know, when you have people who complain about stuff, I don't know, like I don't know about you, but I've always if I hear people just complaining constantly, mm. I just I find it very draining. I yeah. think that it's just like look this this isn't there anything better to talk about than complaining like we're so lucky especially with you know what's happening in the world today like i just uh, i really realized that without gratitude you cannot be happy you cannot be content and you know you can have all of the things in the world but like all the material possessions but if you don't have gratitude you will not be happy and so yeah i think that uh, as as mentioned by um, Evelyn, uh, you know, it's it's and and gratitude is an attitude. Yes. With it being in in yes. the word, um, you know, it, it's an attitude that you have to actively do as well. And I think that that's where um, most religions, you know, with with prayer, especially with Islam, you know, five times a day, you mm. are being grateful for being alive for everything for breathing for walking for everything the the thing is is that I don't know like if you've never done this before try to do this if you're listening and and, but I've tried many times where I'm like okay let me try and list everything I'm grateful for right and Mm. and like you start and honestly you'll be there for ages and you'll get to a point where you're just like I just can't cover it all Mm. and there's no way and then just that feeling sense of happiness and fulfillment that you're like, you know what, I've got so much to be thankful for. Yeah. Like if you literally just start to try, like you're just like, okay, I'm thankful that I'm breathing, that I'm walking, that you know, I have a job. I like this. You could there's so much you can start like yeah. family, yeah. friends, everything. Um, you will never be able to truly, um, list all of those things. So I think that that active, and I think this is where Islam comes in, is that. Islam provides you with the the system to actively be grateful on a daily basis, five mm. times a day, and mm. not just five times a day, but just but all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, when once we start um, making such a list, it is a never-ending list. Mm. It can never stop. And also, I mean, it, it's not just the the good that you're getting in life. Even if I'm facing hardship, Allah the Almighty is enabling me to stay strong in in um, adversity and in difficulties. Yeah. That's another blessing, right? So that's another point for us to be thankful and show our gratitude towards Allah the Almighty. Yeah. God. So and 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 all of that obviously can can only happen if you believe in God, if you believe in the existence of God, if you follow religion, if you. Um, follow what Allah the Almighty has taught you through the Prophet Sallallahu May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and the Holy Quran. So all of that can only happen if you have that higher being which you feel is always with you. I mean, how often have we gone through a very difficult time and then in during our Salat, our, our, our five daily prayers, we pray towards Allah and it felt like a burden has been lifted, hmm. right? I mean, this is the case of millions of Muslims across the globe that have yeah. felt this. That, and I mean, the 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 people of of uh, Palestine today, for example, right? Mm. Listen to the interviews, right? Mm. They are so so strong. They yeah. seem unbeatable. 
Why? Because they have that faith yeah. that everything will come around. Allah is still with us. Allah yeah. can see us. He's listening to us and he'll answer our prayers. Yeah. Right? So religion doesn't just give you happiness. It, it gives you strength, uh, mental strength as well as physical strength. It, it guides you. It helps you. I mean, religion is really the backbone of, of most of our lives. Mm. And that, again, can only happen if there is the existence of God. No, I 100% agree, especially with your point where you said that religion doesn't just bring happiness, right? Like, yeah. religion isn't supposed to be in your life and then you're just happy. Yeah, right? yeah. The, I think that the struggle is such a big part of it. And for me, I've, I've had this discussion with many people where I'm actually very thankful, if not more thankful for the most difficult moments of my life mm, mm. because of one they brought me closer to God mm. and two what I learned from them yeah. and how it turned me into the person that I am yeah. so for me I think that I would if I had like a hierarchy of what I was grateful for when it comes to good or the bad things that have happened in my life I think the bad things are more valuable to me because of what they've taught me and mm. what I've learned from it and I think that again with Islam this this conviction that people have with it is when God uh, has, has said um, you, you can remind me exactly where but um, where um, you will not uh, be burdened with anything that you yeah. cannot yeah. deal with right exactly and with that thought and with that you're like, okay, so whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You will be able to deal exactly. with it. Exactly. So. The, the, the verse you're quoting is, No soul will you be burdened beyond its capacity. And we will talk more about this with our next guest caller, which we have online with us. This It is um, uh, Farzana Zafar Akbar, who is the founder of Progress Tuition Center. And she's also a member of the Ahmadiyya community. Um, Farzana, assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you and welcome Hello. to the Drive Time Show. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. and thank you uh, for being with us. Um, to what extent um, do you believe that religious beliefs influence um, an individual's overall satisfaction with life? Uh, I think uh, they have a great um, sort of uh, a great, uh, to a great extent, uh, they are individual's satisfaction is based on religious beliefs. Um, I mean, it gives you a sense of contentment. Uh, you know, I belong to the Emily Muslim community. We have a code of life. So if ever I'm confused about something, I know where to turn to. I can turn to the Quran or the people around me. And so I know what to do when there are difficulties. You have a sense of peace. And, and gratitude as well. And like you've just said, when adversity does hit, you are more likely to feel stronger uh, than if you didn't have anyone to turn to. God, obviously, is, is the great sort of uh, unifying factor here, that when there's no one else to turn to, you turn to God. Uh, I mean, just to give you a personal experience, uh, my mother was diagnosed with breast and lung cancer, which mm. was devastating for our family. Uh, you know, we were told that she wouldn't have long to live. But because we had this the belief in God and we knew that she was a good person and God wouldn't destroy her, we prayed, 
we then, because we are part of this community, we went to see our religious leader, Hazur, and he gave us advice on homopathic medicine. Mm. I started a broadcast list group to ask people for prayers. Now, these were not just Muslim people. It was people from all different religions. And, uh, you know, basically, she has survived uh, from 2016 until now. She's still with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's that faith in prayer and community and, and the sort of, you know, the, the feeling of, of having some, you know, a God there. The doctors had said, oh, she's not going to survive for more than a few years. Hmm. But having that positive attitude and that feeling and the prayers, I think, is what was pulled her through. Right. And you mentioned to, mentioned a few, but where do religious practices come into this and how do they provide a sense of purpose and contribute to that higher level of contentment? I mean, you know, our prayers, our five times prayers, because, you know, we 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 are, we believe in a living God. We, we are believing in a living God. So we speak to God five times a day. And because of that, it kind of, you know, gives your life this kind of structure. I mean, you can talk to God anytime, which, which, you know, often, you know, we do, you know, anytime, oh God, this has happened, oh God, that's happened. But in our prayers, we are able to really connect with him. And, you know, I feel that the prayers that we do within, with, you know, on our own or with, with, with family or in the mosque, um, I think that's, that's a great, uh, a great, you know, contentment. For us, you know, it gives you that connection with God, and you know, you throughout your life there are times when you feel that God is close. You can actually feel it in your heart. Um, I mean, I can't describe the feeling, but hmm. you know, you, you can tell that God is listening to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, another very small example is um, my dad actually died of uh, cancer, hmm. but. There was a time when he was in so much pain that I prayed to God. I said, God, please get rid of his pain. Now, obviously, I wanted him to be, you know, the pain to get rid of and for him to be better. But two weeks after I did that prayer, I was crying. After I did that prayer, he died. Hmm. And, you know, I felt that, yes, God had heard my prayer, even though it wasn't in the way that I wanted it to be heard. The prayer was heard. And, you know, even though he died, it was a devastating experience. But mm. I was at peace because I knew that God had listened to my prayer and now he was out of pain. Absolutely. And that is exactly what we um, have been talking about today, that uh, whether in a difficult time or in, in, in good times, mm. uh, we as Muslims are taught to always be satisfied and stay content with uh, the decisions that have been taken by the Almighty Himself. Yeah. Um, in, in in your experience or observations, how do individuals from different religions, uh, religious backgrounds, perceive mm. or, or pursue happiness? I've um, my I, I've had I've got lots of friends from lots of different uh, religious backgrounds, and I do believe that having and I do have friends who are not religious. In fact, you know, I have friends from atheists, but I do believe that people who are part of the community. Um, better uh, equipped, um, you know, to, to deal with happiness and, and, you know, sadness as well, you know, when things are not going right. 
um, you know, people who are who are from religious communities and religious backgrounds, they are in a stronger position. I think at the end of the day, it's the belief in God that does it. Um, you know, they, they feel a sense of tranquility. They feel a sense of peace. Um, you know, they, uh, because they are part of a community. We, we're quite fortunate to be part of the Ambia community mm. uh, because we have a setup where we meet on a weekly basis, we meet on a you know monthly basis. You know our our organisation, the Lajai Mahalla, which was set up in 1922, yeah. we meet regularly, and you have that sense of community. And in fact, some people are very envious of us mm. because we have that sense of community, and we have that you know we we can go to uh, you know our our um, people, our ladies. We're not lonely. Yeah. We're never lonely. We, we have we have someone that we can always go to. We have people around us, always. But I do feel that community is very, very important. And no matter what community it is, uh, we are lucky that we have one leader. We have one focus. Other mm. communities don't have that focus. Absolutely, um, and that's very important. I mean, there people are envious of us because we have that. Yes, they belong to a community. But they say there's still confusion because, you know, do I go to this mosque or that mosque or do I talk to that imam or that, that, that person or this church leader or that church leader? Mm. Whereas we have a focus, we have a leader, one set of goals that we follow. Yeah, and, then on, and on that note, I wanted to ask you, do you think it's possible for someone without religious beliefs to experience the same level of life satisfaction as someone with strong religious convictions? I think for people that don't have a, a belief in religion, they find it very difficult to cope with uh, disappointment. You know, if things are going right, then it's great, you know, mm. they're, they're enjoying mm. themselves. But it's when things go wrong. So, you know, you, you're looking at happiness, but, you know, happiness is a reflection. There's, there's two sides to the coin. You know, you're either happy or you're sad, yeah? yeah. And when when people are uh, afflicted by uh, sadness. I think people without a religion find it very, very difficult uh, to cope with that. I mean, I was talking to a doctor, a friend of mine, and she was saying that she found, especially if children died or mm. a very close person died, she found that the people with religion or with, 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 with faith in God coped much better with it you know, with losing someone than yeah. someone who didn't have that faith or that religion. Mm -hmm. Because they were always asking, and in fact, sometimes they'd blame the doctors, oh, you didn't do this, or you didn't give that medicine. Mm. Whereas other people were, are, are more at peace. Absolutely. Um, uh, Sister Farzana, thank you very much for, for being with us and, and uh, sharing your experiences and... and um, uh, this, 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 this positive message with us uh, and I Thank wish you, you a lovely day ahead. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Assalamualaikum. Peace be upon you. So uh, this was um, Farzana Zafar Akbar um, who is the founder of Progress Tuition Centre. Again, very, very positive message there and um, the way she described how both of her parents actually went through cancer and mm. the outcomes were very opposite. Yep. Right? But we have to stay content and really religion religion and Islam specifically helps you with moving on because you see in, in Islam um, the the period of of uh, mourning after the, someone passes is three days right so after that you're yeah. supposed to 
move on with life mm. and uh, not just that but we have seen um several occasions where someone's uh, parents or a loved one passed away and the very next day there was an 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 eid or a jalsa which is mm. the um uh, annual uh, convention so but the people still got ready and they went to those events yep. right because life goes on mm. and this is exactly what what religion teaches us that any scenario even the worst scenario life still goes on and yep. you are very much part of a society which has to carry on um what, what i really liked about what um Fazan said was the um how different people without religion deal with it and i think that i've i've experienced this as well where like there's often blaming of doctors or situations mm. or mm. you know or they they try to kill the relative or whatever it is 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 there's a lot of that can go on um but when you have religion and when you have that belief in god you're just like a lot more content and you're like okay i understand why this is happening and yeah. and you understand it better so and um, and the teaching that we get uh, from islam um at the passing away of someone or even if we lose that the smallest of items mm-hmm. is inna lillahi to allah we belong wa inna ilayhi raji'un and to him shall we all return yeah. right so the primary message everyone is very aware of is that we or this life doesn't belong to us we we don't own it this is something allah has given us and he has the right to take it away whenever he wants right whether it's a child someone at a young age or someone who's lived really i mean um well into um uh his 70s or 80s right yeah i'm not saying that the pain is any less i'm not saying that the, that the sorrow is any less but religion does help so much hmm. when it comes to to moving on and and as you mentioned the the blaming of of doctors and all of that yes yes it it does happen but the uh idea still remains that look what was going to happen has happened so we have to now try and live with the situation and try to move on as as as, as swiftly or as quickly as possible yeah but with the interest of time i wanted to go through the what different uh perspectives there are out there mm. the and what psychology says about like life satisfaction um it refers to an individual's overall assessment of their life as a whole um it's a subjective measure that takes into account various aspects such as happiness fulfillment and the individual's perception of their own well-being mm. um psychologists often examine factors such as personal relationships career satisfaction health sense of purpose and the pursuit of personal goals additionally one's mindset resilience and coping mechanisms play crucial roles in determining overall life satisfaction psychologists often emphasize the importance of positive psychology which focuses on strengths virtues and the factors that contribute to fulfilling life this includes fostering positive emotions building meaningful connections and helping individuals discover and utilize their strengths to navigate life's challenges pretty much so, what so, we said so <laughs> that's the psychological perspective mm. 
we also have the uh, sociological mm-hmm. uh, perspective. So from a sociological perspective, um, life satisfaction is not solely an individual matter. Mm. It's deeply uh, intertwined with uh, societal structures, cultural norms, and uh, um, the dynamics of social relationships. Soci- uh, sociologists study how broader societal factors impact individuals' perceptions of their own lives. So they examine uh, aspects such as social inequality, access to resources, community engagement, and the influence of cultural values, the quality of social relationships, um, including family, friends, and community ties, also plays a pivotal role in shaping an individual's life um, satisfaction. And, and this is again something that that religion teaches us. And I, I always give the example of a mosque. And why and how Muslims have been taught to attend, to, uh, Muslim men specifically have been taught to attend to the mosque five times a day or as much as possible because obviously we, we all work and, uh, and, and, and all that. But you see, if I am used to seeing someone at the mosque, at the Isha prayer, which is the uh, night prayer, mm. every day, and then I don't see him two or three days in a row, mm. there is an alarm yeah. that the that goes off in my mind that something must be wrong. So what do I do? I call him up. Yeah. What's up? Where are you? Hmm. Is everything okay? Is, yeah. is, is everything okay, right? So this is what religion teaches you, right? Or or those small talks that we have before prayer starts or after the prayers. How's it going? How's work, hmm. right? Difficulties. I have seen so many people get help in their professional life hmm. due to their uh, relationships within the community. Yep. Right? So someone, for example... Um, is a is a doctor. Another mm. one is on his way, mm. right? Studies, right? And now he's seeking guidance from someone who's already done that. That is just one aspect of things, right? So there is so much positive and 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 there is so many benefits and blessings that come in disguise just by following the teachings of Islam and yeah. and and working as a community and and and, and staying united. So, I mean, the sociological uh, experience of religion is just immense and a a whole other level. Um, We are coming towards uh, the end of our uh, first hour today. And I think the message, um, Fahim, what's the message been for you today? The message for me today, so let's go back to the question, right? The question is does religion make us more satisfied with life? And I feel like we both started off with yes. Mm. But for me, what I've learned from today is that there's quite a few factors that are involved in that. And yes, religion is a way that we can be more satisfied with life, but there's a lot of action that needs to be taken in order to get that fulfillment. Mm. Um, So the key things that I've learned today is consistency, I think that um, being consistent uh, in appreciating and having gratitude for what you have will definitely 100% bring you a content life Mm -hmm. because that is the main factor um, to happiness. And I think, because I I see it, I think I've seen it in so many people that they chase so many things and they just, like they say, you know, when you start earning, I saw a post the other day on on LinkedIn, where um, it says, "Oh, um, once you earn this amount of money, you feel this way," 
and then you earn this amount of money, you feel this way, and these are the type of friends that you have, and these, and I was just thinking like, when will it be enough? Like you yeah. know, th- there's just like this constant feeling of like, oh, okay, I'm rich enough to have the house that I want, but that guy has uh, a private plane, or I want a private plane now. Mm. Like you know, mm. there's just that never ending. So if you just focus on what you're happy with, uh, what you're grateful for. You won't need to seek what else. Yes, you won't absolutely. need that, and that's not to you can't. That doesn't mean you don't have to be ambitious. That doesn't like that doesn't take away ambition. Mm. It's just stopping you from being greedy and making it about just the earning of that. It's just being happy with what you have. That will really truly bring contentment. Absolutely, and rightly so because you see, I have tried to analyze. You were just mentioning this this this, mm. this this whole concept of of making money and I mean millionaires and billionaires out mm. there and uh, yachts and private jets and whatnot. Many of them, or would rather say most of them, I still see alone, mm-hmm. right? Um, there is the, 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 there was this uh, video clip about this businessman that is traveling the world and and he's very young. He's like in his early twenties, mm. but yeah, private jet and flying air and there, but but he was always alone. Yeah. He's staying alone in 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 his uh, hotel room, and don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not saying that he is is uh, sort of not 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 living his life or he's not happy. He he might be happy, but for us human beings in general, we like being around people. Yeah, we, we like being around action. people that are with us, not for any materialistic reason, but just because they want to be with us. That's mm. it, and this is something that. Living a religious life really gives you yeah. that that gives you a a, a sense of brotherhood, yeah. a sense of unity, and that's something that uh, materialistic gain or financial gain just can never bring you. Yeah. It's just impossible. And one thing that gives you really the contentment and and the peace is a verse that's probably been re- recited a thousand times on the verse of Islam: "Allah that it is verily in the remembrance of Allah." that hearts find peace, right? So if you really want to be happy, you want to mm-hmm. have peace, uh, you want to enjoy life even uh, with the most, uh, with, 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 the, with the tiniest of, of experiences, um, just remember that there is only one way to go. And I remember one of our guest callers uh, mentioned how a lady at the age of 91 actually started enjoying herself Mm. And she just goes around and just spreads happiness with with the smallest of acts, yeah. acts of kindness and 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 gratitude. So that that's something that we need to hold on to, and that really brings us to the end of uh, the first hour. A question we asked you was, uh, "Religion makes me," and a hundred percent of our listeners said it makes us happy. So that's a good thing, yeah. and that's a message for all of our listeners that if you haven't experienced it to experience religion because that's something that will stay with you for life and it will make life easier for you it will help you move on in life and uh, we'll be back with you after the news break you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu may the peace and blessings of allah be upon you all and welcome back um to the second hour here at the drive time show you're joined by myself salman and brother fahim and in the first hour we spoke about religion and the question was does religion um, bring happiness and contentment to our lives or not and I think the answer was pretty 
clear from the beginning, but as we spoke with our guest callers, um, it became more clearer and and in more sort of uh, broader perspectives as well. So if you have missed our first hour, you can always listen back uh, on our website, voiceofislam.co.uk. In the second hour, we are discussing the um, existence of God Almighty and His mercy, Him being the most merciful. So if you would like to contribute um, on this topic, give us a call on 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. You can also find us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. Um, getting started um, on, on, on this topic, we have the very first verses of the Holy Quran in the first chapter, which is uh, Al-Fatiha. It says, uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All um, praise. praise is for Allah the Almighty, who is the Lord of all the worlds. Um, Ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The most gracious, the, most ever gracious, the ever merciful. Malik Yawmadeen, and he is the master of the day of judgment. So this is the introduction that we are given. Um, when 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 you hear these verses, Fahim, mm. what's what's your sort of first thought? So, when it comes to these verses particularly, I think what I am drawn to is that. So we say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, um, which is in the name of uh, God, the most gracious ever merciful. And the fact that we constantly talk about God's mercy mm. and God's grace. Yeah. And in this specific um, context, we're talking about his mercy. So I'll focus on that. But it's at the forefront of everything. It's a constant reminder. And I immediately start to think, because I have a lot of conversations with people where they talk about God's anger a lot. Mm-hmm. And I find that people always fixate on that they're like oh God's going to be angry or mm. that you know or God punishes people or like that that gets a lot more attention yeah when if you look throughout the Quran if you look through like what we've been taught on how to practice um the focus on mercy is always there at the forefront and mm. I think that mm. what I derive from this is that you know God is actually merciful and God is merciful on an infinite level mm. right this isn't just like your standard mercy or like someone's forgiven somebody for something that they've done right yeah. this is infinite mercy yeah. so I think that that is something that people should ponder more on that's mm-hmm. something that some people should focus more on rather than the punishment rather than any sort of thought of oh uh, God is going to, you know, have His wrath, and and you know, there's going to be this disaster or that disaster. Mm. If you look into the fact that God is the most merciful, so imagine the most merciful person in this earth, and times that by a billion, trillion, million, yep. infinity times infinity or times infinity, yeah. like you can't even comprehend mm. how much mercy there is, right? Mm. Mm. And I think that that's why it's at the forefront of everything because it's to remind you that this is infinite mercy. It's not just absolutely simple, we, right? There is a verse of the Holy Quran uh, where Allah the Almighty states that um, my mercy encompasses everything. Hmm. 
mm. or is greater than everything there is right so whatever you have done you see sometimes um people because again as you rightly mentioned um there is this concept of a god that is angry with you mm. that is uh not 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 pleased with you mm. right so we have two ways of 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 looking at the uh existence of allah almighty right so we can either see him and be scared of him or mm. we can just love allah the almighty right we can either look at um what could happen to us for our sins mm. or we could look at what we could achieve through good things and and uh good deeds right mm. so unfor- unfortunately um and and that happens a lot um in 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 sort of most uh, households where from a very young age a child will be told that look god's going to be angry god's going to be angry with you mm. right that's where we just get it wrong mm. because from a very young age a child's been told that look god's going to be angry with you mm. and this perception then 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 stays at the back of the mind somewhere so naturally you learn to be scared i mean we Let's look at modern day parenthood. Right mm. back in the days, maybe some thirty, forty, fifty years ago, children would be scared of their parents. But now you're told that listen, no, it it has to be a friendship. Mm. Your child should be able to open up to you. Yeah. And how is that possible? Because you show him your merciful side, mm. and your child learns. Okay, even if I don't do the right thing, the consequences are not going to be as bad as I think. Mm. right so i can potentially open up to my parents mm-hmm. that same thing we have to do with the being the higher being the 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 almighty where we have to explain to our younger generations and our children and have and have to understand for ourselves as well that it is actually the mercy that's at the forefront mm-hmm. right and then obviously um if if we sort of abuse that mercy he he has the right and the power to to go the other way as well mm-hmm. but at the for- for forefront remains the mercy of allah the almighty mm. so if that perception is given to our younger generations they they will grow up to love their god mm. and they will grow up to good uh, do the good works in order to please him even more instead of being scared of of his wrath right yeah, 100% makes sense yeah no i totally agree because i think that it's just How can you build a connection with someone that you're fearful of, right? Yeah. If that's the thing is that if you if you constantly feel like, "Oh, I'm just going to get in trouble." And and this is what happens with parenthood as well. And I think that, you know, it's like, "Oh, I'm so scared of the reaction that I go and do something even worse because mm. I'm so scared of that reaction." And once you realize that mercy is at the forefront of God Almighty, um then you start to reflect as humans right yeah, and yeah. i like this is something that I, i'm sure uh, most people have probably heard me say at some point is that if god can forgive who are we not to forgive absolutely and i think that um i just it just constantly like the amount of times that whenever i even say that sentence mm, mm. it just calms me down if i'm angry or if i'm upset by something mm. it just because mm. it's just like look you know if there's a being that's given us in 
this is where I, I, I want to bring back to uh, the most gracious ever merciful so much grace has been bestowed upon us yeah that we should be merciful right like that, mm. that think about everything that god has given us and you know we were talking about it in in the earlier show like you know the list of of, of gratitude is just like you can never end that list yes. right yes so the fact that god has been so graceful and has given us all of this without us asking mm. right mm. there's no like you know there's certain things that we've been given that we've never asked for never even thought to ask mm. for mm. um the fact that that's there then wouldn't you think that the mercy from a being that has given you so much is just like inherent right like it's Absolutely. It's, it's, it's just Absolutely. it's it's a no brainer and i think that that's then if you take that to your own self mm. then you realize that look at the end of the day you have been given so much there's mm. so much the only thing that you can control is how you act absolutely right yeah so showing mercy is always um the best way the best way to go and we should follow whatever we have been shown and taught by our god it is um narrated by abdullah bin amr that the messenger of allah may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him said the merciful are shown mercy by ar rahman so the the, the most gracious be merciful on the earth and you will be shown mercy from who is above the heavens the womb is named after ar rahman right so the the word for womb in arabic is 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 rahim hmm. which is named after the word ar rahman so the most gracious so whoever connects it allah connects him and whoever uh, severs it allah severs him hmm. right so the mercy of allah is is considered boundless uh, providing a guiding light for believers as they strive to emulate this this attribute in their relationships and actions and i mean as as you were saying earlier as well and and, and we have seen it so many times um that people that believe or are stronger in their belief in allah hmm. are automatically much more merciful than 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 other common people as well hmm. and the prime example of this that i have personally experienced and i've seen i mean several times is of the current caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community hazrat mirza masrur ahmed may allah strengthen his hand um he is obviously we we have the, this this 100% belief that he is the closest to allah the almighty right at the moment on the earth and his mercy on i mean we've all experienced it at at at, at some point right mm. it just seems like he he can't get angry at you right you could go to him with with the biggest of problems right but it seems like that it's just so much light and mercy that that comes from his face and that's someone who is nowhere near being god I mean not it's billions of, of yeah. galaxies away we're talking about yeah. here. So how much mercy is there in in Allah the Almighty? Mm. Right? Because he has uh, Allah the Almighty himself has uh, explained that if a believer goes astray and he comes back to Allah he 
feels more happiness than a mother that finds her lost child in the desert. Wow. Right? Now imagine um, those of us who are parents, especially the, the, the mothers that that are listening, you can only imagine what you would be going through if you were mm. to lose your child. Mm. Right? And then to find that child, mm. the, that happiness, you you would be... I mean, I mean, and we can only start to imagine the actual feeling is just something something else. Yeah. And Allah says that I feel happier than that when, when you return to me. So if that isn't him being merciful and him being kind to us, mm. what else is? I see. Right? No, that's a great... De- description of it and I think that you know if anybody was ever in doubt of this yeah. this uh, attribute of God mm. I think that that um, is, is a great way to articulate it let's um, now speak with our first uh, guest caller uh, which is uh, Professor Eric Heinzer uh, is a professor of law at Queen Mary University of London he has authored more than 100 articles and eight books, including most recently, The Most Human Right, Why Free Speech is Everything. Um, with the MIT Press, he uh, conducts lectures and interviews internationally in English, French, German and Dutch. And is a member uh, of the Bar of New York and uh, Massachusetts. And has also advised uh, NGOs on human rights, including Liberty, Amnesty International and the Media Diversity Institute. Uh, Professor Heinze, thank you very much for being with, with us. Uh, welcome to the Drive Time Show and peace be upon you. Can you hear yeah, us? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, now. great. Sure. Hello. Excellent. Welcome to the Hi. show. Um, Thank you. Let's get straight into it. So, how does the concept of mercy intersect with established legal frameworks, especially in the context of human rights? Yes. Well, it's a fascinating question, um, and not an easy one. <laughs> um, I, but I think human rights are a very good place to begin. Because human rights are first and foremost about how governments treat their citizens, yeah? And uh, so certainly I think you can find a lot of overlap between the concept of human rights and the concept of mercy, right? Hmm. Because um, human rights require, for example, that governments should not practice torture, that governments should not practice uh extrajudicial killings, in other words, just killing, you know, political enemies or, or, you know, or people without due process and so forth. Uh, As you know, of course, many countries have abolished the death penalty entirely in the name of human rights, um, freedom of religion, right? So there are all sorts of ways in which you could say the government, um, uh, a government is expected to be merciful in the sense that a government is expected to practice a certain humanity and respect and uh, a respect for the dignity of each individual. Having said that, there's also a bit of a difference between the concepts. So I think it's important to understand the similarities, but also the differences. Yes, the, the, the big difference with human rights is that it's a require. It's an expectation. It's a requirement on government. In other words, if government does, in a proper human rights regime, if government does not respect me, if government tortures me or deprives me of a fundamental freedom, then human rights are there for me to, so to speak, take the government to court, to have my day in court, to say the government has mistreated me, and that a court needs to review this, right? 
Um, so, uh, so, so in a sense, that is a recourse for me if the government fails in its duty to what you might say is accord me mercy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on specific legal principles or instruments that um, incorporate or address the idea of mercy in the realm of uh, human rights? Yeah, and I would say pretty much all of them in so, in one way or another, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. If you go, uh, you know, I mean, I guess, um, where, you know, maybe the most famous example internationally would be the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. Mm. Now, of course, that, that was an interesting document, and so much of what has come about in human rights over, you know, in the intervening decades has been building on the Universal Declaration from 1948. And, um, uh, and there, you know, if you want to kind of see this as a sort of a lesson in mercy, then it expands even further, right? So, for example, the Universal Declaration clearly includes uh, uh, an expectation on governments, again, not to kill people arbitrarily, not to torture them, not, you know, not to repress you know, their legitimate freedoms of speech or religion. And so, you know, I, I think you're probably familiar with this. But then the Universal Declaration goes further. Right, saying that governments should ensure that people have enough to eat, enough food, that they have safe housing, that they have clothing, right, that they have an education, hmm. right? Now, um, you you could call this merciful. Why? Because if people don't have these things, then they can then they run the risk of having a much uh, deteriorated and a much harsher quality of life. Hmm. Right. So by ensuring these things, which help to give people a better quality of life, which might help them uh, 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 um, uh, uh, to, to, to achieve prosperity in their lives, you could you could certainly call that a way of exercising mercy, if only because it's preventing people from falling into hardship. Right. And so with that in mind, I wanted to ask you, are there actual universal principles of mercy specifically that should be upheld globally because i, I understand what you're saying that you know the, the universal declaration of human rights kind of is showing mercy but are there any specific like pr- universal principles of mercy that we want that you think that should be upheld globally you know we can bring the current <laughs> context in, into into play, but um, you know, is, is there something that that can be put specifically for mercy? Because you know, yes. Well, yeah, the, yeah, it's a great question and a hard one. Yeah. I mean, clearly, the the very word mercy is not one that is that that is used. But again, we sometimes we can say the same thing in different ways, right? Mm. Um, uh, and you, you know, you could say that mercy right that say a government is exercising mercy when it could inflict a hardship or it could allow a hardship to happen but it doesn't right Right? Mm -hmm. so you might never use the word mercy and yet you could call that merciful so these are principles you could say which are certainly promoting mercy and even expecting mercy Mm. or even demanding mercy even if the word mercy is never used right um uh so maybe maybe you don't necessarily need to have the actual word in order to bring the practice about 
Yeah, I, so I hear what you're saying, but so what I'm trying to allude to, and I, and I appreciate that yeah. this, is, this is a hard question, but yeah, um, hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially because I think about post World War Two, the, the way countries uh, dealt with certain situations, or no, sorry, post World War One, you know, it kind of um, caused a lot of discontent in different countries because of the harsh repercussions. Because you know, there's justice, right, on one hand, but you know, when injustice has happened, there should be a bit of mercy being shown as well in the sense that it shouldn't be so... It shouldn't be... If something, if somebody wrongs you, you shouldn't then wrong them 10 times worse. That's that's what I'm trying to uh, allude to here. And I think that, you know, making sure that there is mercy in the way that once atrocities has been committed or have been committed, the mercy that is shown afterwards, like how... Is there some sort of principles that we could put in place from from a legal standpoint that could help to stop that? I think that, yeah, again, fantastic questions. Um, Two examples come to mind, although both of these examples have been disputed. But let's try them, yeah? One example, you you mentioned World War II. One example might have been, you know, the famous Marshall Program, right? And so after the Allied powers, you know, they they defeated Germany, and in many ways Germany was flattened, right? Germany had been an enormous power, you know, throughout World War II, had, you know, taken over virtually all of continental Europe, right? And so Germany was a very formidable ally, um, and, you know, uh, uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, you know, Germany had caused such havoc um, that many people were wondering, you know, should we allow Germans to rise again? Hmm. You know, should we, and, you, know, you know, should we help rebuild them and just, to, uh, you know, are we just building another Nazi state, hmm. right? And yet, and yet they took the gamble, they took the risk of actually investing in Germany, helping to rebuild it, to redevelop it. And in fact, you know, overwhelmingly, Germans today are very grateful for that. Um, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly, you know, probably 70, 80 percent of the population would say, you know, that they were happy, probably even more, in fact, would say that they were happy that the Marshall Program was implemented, you know, that, uh, uh, and, and, that, and that they were grateful for what you could say was merciful, because the Allies did not have to do that. Now, other people would say, you know, that wasn't necessarily mercy, because the Allies were just acting in their own interest by creating an ally. Again, people still debate this, but it's a possibility. I think it's worth keeping in mind. A second example would be um, truth and re- the truth and reconciliation processes in South Africa, right? South Africa had been an apartheid regime for, you know, for, for many, many years. And then, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela was sitting in prison for, 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 for a very long time. And, you know, there had been brutal killings and recriminations. And, you know, it was, it was a very dangerous, uh, volatile situation after the end of apartheid when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison, allowed to become president. And what they decided was that, you know, instead of lots of court cases and lots of prosecutions and a lot of recriminations, they were just going to do what was known as truth and reconciliation, right, where people could just come and discuss, you know, what, you know, what they had experienced, the violence, the pain, the grief, the suffering. This could be, you know, brought out into the open, you know, and at least try to do a bit of healing, right? Now, again... Some people would have said this was not necessarily mercy. Some people would have said, no, you know, some of the abusers got away too lightly. 
and they, you know, they should have spent maybe more time in prison or more time in prison, you know, people who had run the old apartheid regime. So again, none of these examples uh, come without criticisms, but I think they are often held up as examples where, you know, certain, um, you know, as you say, acts of justice might have legitimately been imposed, but instead uh, uh, certain parties opted for an alternative to a kind of strict and rigid justice and trying to go more down the path of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor uh, Heinz, thank you very much um, for, 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 for being with us, for taking all your time. And it was it really was a pleasure speaking with you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, I would have loved to, to have more uh, conversation in this regard. Thank you very much for, for being with us, and I wish you a lovely day ahead. Yes, and I wish you and your listeners a very happy New Year. Thank you. Uh, happy thank New Year you. to you too. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Take thank care. You. Cheers. Bye-bye. 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 Um, so we were just um, speaking with uh, Professor Eric Heinze, um, who is a professor of law at uh, Queen Mary University of London. And obviously he was sharing with us his um, expertise in this regard, in, in regards to mercy and yeah. uh, discussing this from a um, legal, legal, standpoint, legal yeah. standpoint, isn't it? No, definitely. I really um, enjoyed what you were saying because I... We we gave him some hard questions, but I think that you know, when it comes to law, um, it's very difficult to articulate um, mercy, and that's where I think that religion can really Absolutely. bridge that gap. Absolutely. And swiftly moving on to our next guest caller, which is uh, Professor uh, Cornell William Brooks, um, who is a house professor of the practice of uh, non-profit organizations and professor of the practice of public leadership and social justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. He is a civil rights attorney and a deigned minister and is the recipient of several honorary doctorates. Uh, Professor Brooks, thank you very much for being with us. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. It is good to be with you. It is good to be with you. Um, so I wanted to get into understanding a bit more about mercy and as we know, there are some moments in history where arguably mercy has not been shown by one man to another. Um, you know, slavery, for example. Um, in what ways did the institution of slavery perpetuate systemic injustices? And how did this impact the concept of mercy? Certainly. So the, you know, slavery has been practiced in uh, a great many societies around uh, the world, uh, the um, inhuman and unjust tradition of which I'm the most familiar is the transatlantic slave trade um, and certainly in the American context. But to speak of mercy uh, means to speak about the ways in which human beings have called upon other human beings to examine both their own humanity and the degree to which many are religious, their own connection to divinity. And based upon such a standard, extend like treatment, proportional treatment, uh, humane treatment to other human beings. So the abolition of slavery was called upon because it was deemed to be cruel and uh, dehumanizing and demeaning and degrading, and as such, empowered people were called upon to extend mercy, justice to less empowered people. 
And so this is baked in, if you will, uh, in our Abrahamic faith and traditions in Judaism and Islam, uh, in Christianity and other religious traditions and other more philosophical traditions as well. Right. And so what other historical events or periods present challenges to the narrative of mercy in human behavior? Oh, there, there are a great many. So if we think about the development of, and the development, the peniological evolution, if you will, mm. of, the, of the death penalty, right? If we think about the notion, of, philosophical notion of just war, in other words, how are wars waged? Uh, you see elements, concepts of mercy. So in other words, to put another human being to death in terms of the death penalty or capital punishment, um, you will frequently hear people say that uh, people should not be judged merely by the worst thing that they have done, and the worst thing that they have done uh, should not call upon uh, or, or, I should say, invoke the worst in us as human beings. In the case of just war theory, the notion that we respond to harms proportionately, right? Yeah. Uh, that is based on the notion of mercy. When it comes to juvenile justice or children's rights, um, we often, in societies all around the world, we say we should not judge, should not punish, should not condemn children based upon an adult standard. So mm -hmm. mercy is literally baked into our legal system our peniological system, systems of punishment, and even in our national security and national defense systems, at least in terms of the moral or philosophical justification uh, for war. And this is true in countries all around the world. Yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting. I uh, didn't think of it like that before. And so could you also discuss some instances where mercy was extended or denied based on the societal structures or hierarchies? Mm. So if we think about in the wake of World War II, hmm. um, in the wake of World War II, in the wake of the use of and World War I and World War II, when we think about the use of certain kinds of, of weapons, Right. So we think yeah. about uh, mustard gas and after World War One, we think about nuclear weapons after World War Two. There were all manner of human rights conventions, all manner of, of human rights protocols, all matter all manner of essentially war conventions that essentially said we cannot do what we've done in the past. Certain weapons, certain ways of waging war are deemed to be uh, unmerciful, inhumane, and cruel. And so um, we, we've seen this in many, many instances um, uh, around the world. Yeah. And so in, with mercy and uh, social justice, could you describe how and in, in what ways the, the con these two concepts uh, intersect? Where does mercy yes. begin? Where does social justice, like, where is that intersection? So just societies are often based on uh, precepts and principles in terms of how human beings relate to one another. They also, it also relates in terms of justice, how we uh, govern ourselves, 
and also to gain the goals and the aims of society. So in other words, if you create a system for the distribution of wealth, a just society considers the well-being of not only the rich, but also the poor. It considers the well-being of those who are well-able, but also those who are disabled. So mm -hmm. justice governs economic relationships, it governs social relationships, it governs relationships between racial groups, powered and uh, unempowered groups. Mercy, on the other hand, comes in at the point at which one party, one people, one um, class has power over another right. and is in, in a position of inflicting harm, inflicting pain, inflicting uh, a cost on another, hmm. where the weaker group is extended uh, mercy. So we, we, we see this, for example, um, in terms of e examples where um, we evacuate um, civilians um, hmm. in, in, a, in a theater of war. We see this uh, in terms of mercy when uh, in, the, in the criminal legal system where a person has committed an offense, hmm. perhaps they are due a particular sentence, but a judge, a jury, or some kind of adjudicatory body will say, you might be due X, severe penalty, hmm. but we accord you Y, a less severe penalty. And mercy can be simply based upon um, the, an appreciation for the unique circumstances of uh, a person charged with a crime or the unique vulnerability of a victim, an innocent, uh, a person uh, who through, through no fault of their own uh, are caught up uh, in, in a particular devastating circumstance. So we have uh, seen this in um, many instances uh, in, in, the, in the past where literally every day in juvenile uh, systems around, uh, around the world, literally children receive less severe punishments for the same offenses yeah. as adults. Um, but we also see this, again, in war where we treat civilians differently than we treat combatants. Um, we um, literally uh, consider, for example, members of the press, uh, we treat them differently than we treat uh, combatants. And so, you know, mercy is generally invoked at the point of vulnerability, the point of weakness, uh, the point of in, in which you have the power to inflict harm, but you choose to inflict no harm or less harm and most certainly proportionate harm. And um, finally, I want to ask you about... Um what what ways can acknowledging historical injustices contribute to building a more just and merciful society today? Because, you know, if we don't learn from the past, then, you know, we'll continue to make the same mistakes. Precisely. So one of the things we can do is not relegate the past to the past, hmm. which means that we have to treat the past as instructive for the present. And that simply means that we have to consider, for example, uh, in, in, the, in the United States, uh, the years in which we literally treated children 
uh, as little adults, and we punish them as severely. We don't do that uh, to the same degree. Uh, when we study World War One, so study World War Two, when we study wars around uh, the world, we have to consider what have we learned? What can we do differently? How can we demonstrate more humanity, more compassion, even as we seek uh, security as countries? Uh, but how do we also seek security with justice, with peace, and with the prospect of nonviolence? And my, you know, my perspective is most certainly informed by my uh, studies of you know people like uh, Martin Luther King or Gandhi, but also think about Nelson Mandela. Hmm. Nelson Mandela in South Africa, initially waged uh, armed struggle against the apartheid regime. Yeah. But he modified his armed struggle to focus on military tar targets, uh, non-combatants, uh, and eventually he became a, if you will, a um, peacemaker um, and someone who negotiated uh, a way forward uh, from a racial a racialized, say, a race conflict, a racial conflict, certainly a military conflict, a paramilitary conflict, to negotiate a peace. I think that's instructive for the present. Okay, thank you so much. Really appreciate you having on, having you on the show and for your insight. Thank you, Professor. Oh, thank you. Have thank a great you. rest of your day. You too. So we just spoke uh, uh, with um, Professor... Brooks, um, who give us, again, great insight into this topic. And, uh, I mean, these are the kind of conversations you just want to sort of carry on with, isn't it, Fahim? But time does um, get the better of us. Honestly. And uh, really, uh, but yeah, uh, very, very interesting. We always pack um, in very a lot of great guests in, in such a small amount of time that it, you just want to carry on chatting with them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think uh, a quote that uh, we should read out to our listeners here is of the promised messiah Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian um, and he says that the, the true meaning of and essence of seeking forgiveness or istighfar is to implore God so that no human weakness becomes manifest and so that God may put, uh, support human nature with his strength and uh, envelope uh, it within the circle of his protection um, why I went towards this side of, of uh, this discussion, towards the religious side, because we will now be speaking with our next guest caller, uh, which is uh, Labib Ahmed Janud, who is a missionary of the Amdiya community and uh, is currently serving. Um, Imam Labib, uh, Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum salam Thank you, Jazakallah, for having me. Jazakallah uh, for taking out your time today. Um, Imam Labib, how does Islam protect non-combatants uh, during times of conflict and, and what guidelines exist regarding the treatment of prisoners of war in Islam? So, in order to understand this concept, uh, this concept I actually want to start off with a verse of the Holy Quran um, in which God Almighty states, Meaning, my mercy encompasses all things. So if God Almighty has stated this in the Holy Quran, naturally we can be led to believe that there's going to be some sort of mercy integrated into all the guidance that God has provided us. 
So, unlike the teachings of Moses, Islam doesn't teach aggression, nor does it, like present-day Christianity, teach a contradiction. Um, what I mean by that is that we're often told that the Gospels merely teach turning the other cheek when hit on one. Hmm. But there are other teachings as well, which go to the extent of telling followers to, you know, sell their clothes on their backs to purchase swords. But yep. this, of course, um, is a conversation in itself, and I may be straying from the topic. But the point is that Islam strikes a mean between these two, and it holds peace as the outcome, as the ultimate goal. So aggressive wars have entirely been forbidden by Islam, and this is where the answer lies in the question at hand, that, you know, how does Islam protect those non-combatants, and what is the protocol given to those prisoners of war? So the Holy Quran categorically teaches us that war is only to be waged against those who fight against us, and that too in the form of an army. So you're only to fight the army that is charged by the enemy on his side, and those taking no part in warfare are not to be harmed in any way. The Holy Prophet actually mentioned specifically that children and women were not to be harmed at all. Um, as far as prisoners of war are concerned, first and foremost, they can only be taken as prisoners if they are part of the combatant party and after the conflict has started. Then the Holy Prophet actually ordered prisoners to be treated with great compassion and kindness. And history proves that because of this order, the companions actually worried about the comfort of prisoners even more than their own ease. When a Muslim was to take charge of a prisoner of war, the prisoner was to be fed and clothed in the same way as the Muslim himself. Um, furthermore, the Holy Prophet commanded that those prisoners who were close relatives of one another should not be separated at all. Um, then, it was also said that if a Muslim commits the sin of ill-treating a prisoner, the atonement would be the release of that prisoner without any ransom. So the Holy Prophet was so insistent on these rules that he actually declared that whoever did not observe these rules at all was in actuality not fighting for God, but was fighting for himself. Right, and so are there limitations on the use of force or, or weaponry in Islam? Yes. So even after the enemy has initiated an attack, um, it is actually the duty of Muslims to keep warfare within limits. Mm. Um, what that means is any excessive force or unnecessary harm to people or property is not allowed. And Muslims are actually urged to exercise restraint and avoid disproportionate retaliation. Um, uh, as was mentioned earlier, um, one, one example is you know, non-combatants are not to be harmed in any way. Uh, mutilation, which was a common practice in Arabia, was completely forbidden by the Holy Prophet. Yes, yes, yes. Um, then, the, you know, there's the prohibition of torture, uh, the prohibition of use of poisonous weapons. Um, there was also protection given to religious sites and symbols. So, as a general rule of thumb, the use of force was to be proportionate to that of that, that the Muslims faced. Um, of course, again, with exceptions of the few things that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Imam Labib, how does Islam address the concept of um, preemptive strikes or uh, preventive war? So I, I'll re-emphasize what I said initially, mm. that the permission for military action and use of force mm. was only for self-defense purposes yeah. or to uphold justice. There is no such concept of a preemptive strike or preventative war. 
Um, yes, preemptive measures were taken, but there was no action that was ever taken based off presumption. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean by this is that um, if and whenever the Holy Prophet وسلم, received any news that an enemy tribe was preparing to wage an attack against the Muslims, he would preempt their design to prevent the attack. The Holy Prophet wouldn't allow the enemy to fully prepare while the Muslims sat idle and waited to be attacked. Hmm. Uh, on the contrary, the Prophet ﷺ actually would make an effort for the Muslim army to arrive unexpectedly while the enemy was unaware. And it's because of these strategies that the Holy Prophet was actually able to protect the Muslims from many hardships and actual conflicts as well. So again, no actual uh, strike or wars were taken before any sort of action was taken against the Muslims. Right, and so let's let's talk about after a conflict has ended, right? Um, how does Islam encourage mercy in this process? Like um, when there's re- reconciliation and rebuilding, are there any sort of specific teachings or practices that emphasize forgiveness and compassion? Because um, you know they were former adverse, adversaries, right? That they, they, it, you're, you're waging war on these people. Is is there? some sort of uh, emphasis on forgiveness and compassion uh, in the aftermath of war? So I think that the answer to this can be best explained in Fatah Makkah, the conquest of Makkah. Um, So let us understand sort of the background. Um, Makkah was the birthplace of the Holy Prophet, but due to severe persecution and hostility from the Quraysh, uh, him and his followers actually migrated to Medina. And mind you, this was 13 years of severe persecution. So over the following years, even in Medina, conflicts continued, wars happened, and many of those that were dear and near to the Holy Prophet actually perished. So fast forward now to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which was a treaty signed between the Muslims and the Quraysh that allowed for a period of peace for 10 years. Despite this treaty being in place, there were instances of violations by the Quraysh and their allies, which actually resulted in bloodshed. And this is what led to the mobilization of a Muslim army of 10,000 from Medina to Mecca. And when they reached, what happened? You know, now would have been the moment for the Holy Prophet ﷺ to you know, gratify his ambition, if any, to satiate his lust or to get revenge. Hmm. But that's not at all what happened. There was no blood in the streets. No butchered bodies, nothing. That day was the greatest triumph of the Holy Prophet ﷺ over his enemies, yet no military action was taken. No house was robbed, no woman was insulted. He freely forgave the Quraysh for all the years of sorrow and cruel scorn that they inflicted on him. He even gave an amnesty to the whole population of Mecca. Yeah. So this exemplifies and actually speaks volumes for the principles of mercy and reconciliation, uh, which is central to Islamic teaching. Absolutely, and uh, what a wonderful note. Um, to end this conversation, Imam uh, Labib Imajinu, thank you very much, Jazakallah, for being with us, and uh, I wish you a, a great day ahead. Jazakallah, assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you. Jazakallah, Jazakallah for having me. So, uh, this was uh, Imam Labib uh, Junood, who is a missionary of the Amanda community and currently stationed in the USA. And he was kind enough to speak with us and really give us um, this this Islamic perspective. And I, I always say this, that if you want to understand the teachings or the real teachings of Islam, 
and Allah the Almighty always look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad may peace yeah. and blessings of Allah be upon him because he got the teachings from Allah directly and mm. he was the the best of people yeah. and, and, and he was the most complete of people mm. and if someone could portray the mercy of Allah in in uh, human boundaries mm. it was the Prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon mm. him and the way uh, Imam uh, Labib was mentioning um, Fatah Makkah, the, 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 the victory over Makkah, when the Prophet uh, came back to Makkah after being uh, persecuted there for 13 years of his life. You see, 13 years is a very, very long yeah. time. Um, being abused and, 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 and prosecuted and persecuted and really all sorts of um, adversities that, 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 that she really went through, right? Mm. Despite all of that, coming back to Makkah mm. and raising the slogan of La Tasriba Alaykum al that there will be um, no punishments for you today. So all of you are free to go, basically, right? Mm. Or, I mean, that speaks of volumes about the importance of mercy and compassion within Islam. And that can only give us an idea of, of how merciful the God of Islam is, Allah the Almighty actually is. Hundred percent. I think that. So I I find that if you are merciful, it actually, in any situation, it actually makes you feel better. Like for anyone who who thinks that they they're losing out, like I I can tell you that when you show mercy yeah. to someone yeah. else, you actually feel a sense of, it, and it feels innate. It feels as if it's something that we're supposed to do. And I think that. Um, you know, it's quite intrinsic to human nature. Mm, I think mm. that we want to forgive. Like, as soon as we understand, um, you know, and I think one of the key things to uh, forgiveness is, um, and, and mercy following that, um, is to understand. Yeah. To put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand, okay, what 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 motivated them to do that? What why is it? You know, it's not just because they're a bad person or, yeah. or whatever. Like th- there must be something, mm. and you know, Islam teaches us to seek that understanding. Yeah, right. To to understand to look for the best in people. Mm. You know, we can sit here all day and look at everything that's bad about everything and everyone, but it's like we were talking earlier about being grat- uh, being grateful mm. and showing that gratitude. I think that. When it comes to mercy, you need to understand the situation. And once you do, you will then act more merciful. Yeah. And that, again, it goes back to the point of, of God being the most uh, merciful. It ties in with the the other um, attribute of, of God is the all-knowledgeable. Yeah. Right. God understands every single intricacy, mm. every part of your life, every single action that you've done. Because of that knowledge, right? Like th- there's that understanding, and that's why God shows mercy as mm. well. And it's like it just the more you start to unpick this, the more you start to you know when you start to focus on the the attributes of God, yeah. you really start to understand how you are supposed to behave and how you know how vast and how incomprehensible actually God is sometimes because mm. of like when you really sit there and you think about something in its infinite 
infinite infinite like yeah. uh maximum uh, you really start to realize that oh, okay I, I like hey i showed that person mercy because you know they cut me off on the road and i, I didn't get angry and i didn't haunt at them like that's nothing like yeah. there, there's there's so many more levels to it and yeah so i think to, to understand and to make sure that you try to understand and once you start on that journey then you know mercy is the only thing cuz the thing is usually as i think um uh professor uh, brooks mentioned as well is that the difference uh, between like social justice and mercy is mercy is where someone has more power over the other individual mm. right so there mm. there is that disparity in 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 the the level of power so you you then at that point you can stay on your like you know height and be like hey i know best but once you lower yourself and you understand and you bring that humility hey let's say i was in this position you will then be a lot more merciful mm, absolutely um one of our professors um used to say that if anyone deals with you in a sort of negative way right remember that they're ill they're sick right okay because there is always a a background that there's always some story behind every action mm. right so and Allah the Almighty, because He knows everything, He understands everything, mm-hmm. he, he knows where our actions are coming from. Maybe that's another reason why He is so merciful. Mm-hmm. So we as human beings just, just, just need to adopt that yeah. that uh, mercifulness and, and really try to understand that whoever has wronged us in, 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 in some way or the other mm-hmm. has done so because of a specific reason. Uh, there, uh, there is a story that we are prob- probably are not aware of because no, no yeah. human uh, out of his sheer nature is 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 trying to be abusive towards you or yeah. or trust is is trying to wrong you right yeah so that brings us to the end of uh today's drive time show i hope um you enjoyed i hope that we all learned some new things and if you missed some of the show go back to our website voiceofslam.co.uk and you can always listen back the show to uh, the, the both the uh, uh segments today were produced by Azga Hina and Faryal Nasir. Thank you very much to our producers, as well as our tech team behind the scenes, Seryar Khan, who's, as always, are doing an immaculate job in, in, in running these things as smoothly as possible. Um, that brings us to the end of the Drive Time show today. Um, please stay tuned. Uh, Monday to Friday, every day, 4 to 6, Drive Time show is there for you, always discussing very interesting topics and always uh bringing the islamic perspective of things uh to the forefront because this is voice of islam where you will get the real teachings of islam and uh, that is it for today thank you very much for being with us assalamu alaikum warahmatullah may the peace and blessings of allah be upon you all